Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Ever since Arnaldo aged out of the school system, started cycling through group homes, his mom Gladys has kept a daily log of his care. She brought it to the kitchen table during one of my visits last fall. Arnaldo's sister Miriam explained. Every time that situation happens, she writes everything down because we couldn't keep up with all the things that were happening. So she kept a calendar with all of that data and information every single time an incident would happen or a situation would happen that we would confront. It's a paper calendar on a legal-sized notepad. In the box for each day, she scribbled notes about where Arnaldo was, with her or at a group home or hospital psych ward, what he was doing, and what was done to him. By doctors, by teachers, by behavioral assistants by the people who were supposed to be helping him. Do you mind, like, telling me some of the days here? Okay. <clears throat> July 16th, Arnaldo was... Um, restrained. But it was a really bad restraint. Um, Gladys puts her hand on Miriam's arm. Be careful, she whispers. Be careful. You're telling me to be careful? Okay, you need to tell me what you want me to say and what you don't want me to say. Because I am tired of, of covering shit up for people that are pretending to care about Arnaldo, but they don't. They clearly don't. I'm tired. You're listening to After Effect. I'm Audrey Quinn. This is our third episode. I'm going to recommend you listen to one and two first if you haven't already. This will make a lot more sense. So far, I'd found out everything I could about the incident itself and what happened to Arnaldo just afterwards. But how did he get there, to that intersection with Charles Kinsey, surrounded by armed police officers? I started putting together a timeline of my own, making phone calls, sending emails, ordering case files, records, showing up at people's doors. What I found buried in Arnaldo's history is the story of a developmental disability system starved for funding, and how the first thing to go in a rationing of resources is concern for people's humanity. When someone forgets the humanity of people like Arnaldo, anything can happen, and does. They can get neglected, tortured, sometimes within inches of their lives, sometimes to death. The next part of the story starts with the person who knows Arnaldo best, his mom Gladys, who needs the certainty of that paper calendar. Because in her head, the memories of Arnaldo's childhood now just come in short flashes of painful, specific images. I start to understand that they're the places her mind goes to when she suddenly checks out of an interview with me the earliest visions of what was to come on July 18th, 2016. We're going to focus on three of them. In the first scene, it's 1991. Gladys is a 35-year-old emergency room nurse. She's in a pediatrician's office in San Juan, Puerto Rico, a private clinic. Gladys looks very small in the big examination room chair, with her somber, moon-faced 18-month-old in her lap. You can imagine them surrounded by pastel-colored walls, maybe a few butterfly decals here and there. It all contrasts with the doctor's humorless face. 
A little after he turned one, her second child, Arnaldo, had stopped talking, wouldn't look her in the eye. And she had an idea what might be up with him. Bueno, soy enfermera. Well, I'm a nurse. En mi... En mi estudio, and in my studies, el profesor pidió que cada cual cogiera un tema. The professor asked everyone to pick a topic. Teníamos que hacer un thesis. Una tesis. Oh. Yo escogí autismo. You did your thesis on autism. Bueno, she explains this to the doctor. Por eso le decía al doctor algo raro está pasándole a mi hijo. E incluso, she spoke in medical terms walked him through what she'd observed in Arnaldo. The autismo. The doctor said, he's okay. He's okay. You are, you are a nurse. You are a, a picky nurse. It's okay. Don't worry. Forget it. He, he, he didn't believe you. Me. No, él no creyó en mí. Él no creyó. It was one of the last times she'd reveal her medical training ahead of time to one of Arnaldo's doctors because clinician after clinician disagreed with her autism diagnosis. First they said he'd catch up to the other kids, then they just used the R word, retarded. Preschool, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, all pass. Arnaldo does not learn to read, does not learn to write, does not learn to multiply. Regular schools wouldn't take him because he was too far behind. And even though one doctor told Gladys Arnaldo will be in diapers the rest of his life, she couldn't get him into disability programs because he didn't have a diagnosis. So Gladys pays for his speech therapy out of pocket, $45 for a half-hour session. She's a single parent. It's a lot on her nurse's salary. And the sessions don't help. Health insurance doesn't cover autism-specific therapy, any therapy, because he still doesn't have a diagnosis. She couldn't find any doctor in Puerto Rico who'd give him one. In the second movie that plays through Gladys's head, Arnaldo's now eight years old, and she's talked to a hospital co-worker about her son, a neurologist. And the neurologist offered a suggestion. Ella me dijo... She tells Gladys there's this place in Baltimore, the Kennedy Krieger Institute. It's a hospital that specializes in learning disabilities, developmental disorders. No tenía dinero. You didn't have the money, yeah. No tenía dinero. But Gladys has already made up her mind. She decides this place, 1,500 miles away, this is the place she's going to get answers. She rallies her extended family. They put on bingo game fundraisers. Eh, vendimos donuts. Donuts. Oh, they sold donuts to save eh, money, to raise money. Sí, chocolate. Hershey. Chocolate, <laughs> Hershey. Arnaldo loved Hershey chocolate. <laughs> he loved it. She has a garage sale, sells most of her housewares. Her coworkers chip in, too. And soon, she and Arnaldo are on their way to Baltimore. But the trip doesn't go as planned. During the layover in New York, Arnaldo gets anxious, has one of his outbursts. So the airline doesn't let him back on the plane. He finally calms down after a stay in a local hospital, but the delay costs Gladys her free room at the Baltimore Ronald McDonald House. She'll have to rent a hotel, something in all that fundraising she didn't budget for. 
For 13 days, Arnaldo goes to appointments, analyses, testing sessions. Gladys starts to run out of money. You can picture them there, holed up in that hotel room, shuttling between there and the institute. Gladys skipped meals so Arnaldo could eat. But in the end, she does get an answer. And in this play, 12 daughters, they make the decision and they make the diagnosis. He's autistic. Gladys isn't excited when she tells this story. It's not some kind of delayed victory. Instead, it's a story of exhaustion. This is what I had to do to get Arnaldo what he needed. We need to make a lot of decisions to bring Arnaldo comfort, security, love. Because nobody, nobody would do it. I don't know how I say If If you don't do it, there's not going to be anyone else who will do yes. it. Yes, yes. When Gladys got back to Puerto Rico from Baltimore, she was in bad shape. When a mosquito bite turned into dengue fever, it quickly became the severe kind, which then turned into acute pancreatitis. She was in an intensive care unit for 21 days. Her health hasn't been the same since. In the third scene Gladys thinks back to, Gladys sees Arnaldo at 10 years old. He's sitting in a classroom. His hands are bound behind him. He's tied to a chair. Gladys moved the family from Puerto Rico to Miami that year, 2000, because she thought the Florida school system would be better for Arnaldo. And Arnaldo was able to get into a school for kids with disabilities, that school, the Quest Center in Broward County. But Miriam and Gladys say things didn't get better. They got worse. That quest, he was being mistreated and whatnot, so it was horrible. There was an assistant responsible for riding the bus with Arnaldo to get him home. The lady would push him down the stairs of the school bus in front of us, and we would scream and yell for her to stop hitting him. One time, they saw her punch him in the face as they were waiting for him at the bus stop. Miriam remembers him running at her terrified as he got off the bus pulling her hair in anger. She says Arnaldo wasn't the same after the Quest Center, says he started mimicking the abuse at home, hitting, pushing, punching. The woman from the bus was later fired, and Arnaldo's stepdad started picking him up from school. But at another point when Arnaldo had a behavioral episode, three men at the school came and restrained him. Miriam says they twisted his arm till it broke. He had to wear a cast. Miriam and Gladys said their friend Daisy was around then. She'd be someone I could check this with. Yeah, Daisy Ravello. She used to be our support coordinator back in the day. She maybe has information. Is she still at APD? No, no, ella no está en APD. No, she's no longer no, in APD, no. 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 It would be best if you let her know that she's going to get a call, I call from, it, I call from Belle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, why do you call me Belle? Because... Because you sound like like Belle from Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> I find that really embarrassing. No, it's not embarrassing, I promise. It's so cute. It's so cute. <laughs> this is not the kind of relationship I'm used to having as a reporter. But I make it clear to them that I'm here to get facts. So each time I see them, I double-check these same stories, make sure the details hold up. 
and I reach out to anyone else who knew Arnaldo before to try to figure out the truth behind his story, to try to make that timeline. I contacted the current leadership at that Quest Center school. They said none of them had been there back then. They couldn't comment. I tried reaching out to the school district. They couldn't comment either. So I talked to Daisy, the woman Miriam and Gladys recommended. Hello? Yep. Okay. When I reached her by cell phone, she was driving from one of her offices to the other. She now has an autism behavior analyst company. I'm one of the many calls she'll have this morning. Let me take it for one second, please. Okay. Daisy used to work as a contractor for Florida's Agency for Persons with Disabilities, APD. She was one of the hundreds of coordinators they contract to help connect developmentally disabled people with services. She did this specifically for Arnaldo, so she knew Arnaldo while he was at Quest, around the time he was riding home on the bus. They did have to put a harness on him so he doesn't escape because he would try to get out of the school bus. But that he has been abused, yeah, he has been abused because I don't know how to handle him. They who couldn't handle him, for Daisy, means both the staff at Quest and Arnaldo's family. She thinks no one knew what to do with him. She says Gladys and her husband at the time had to stand in front of the bus doors when it arrived to keep him from running off. Not that you could blame him. And the bus driver had to turn off the the school bus and take out the key. Otherwise, he would grab the key and run with it or or toss it out. But according to Daisy... Arnaldo's behavioral issues began well before he landed at Quest. Arnaldo was a big kid. She thinks he was dangerous. Okay, I have been in their house. Arnaldo has come out of the bathroom. Miriam has been sitting next to me. And he has come in and got Miriam by the hair. And, and, you know, and shake her up and down. And so, for no reason. Daisy says Gladys let him get away with a lot of things, beating up her and his sister. Left them right. I can't imagine, like, I've met Arnaldo. I can't imagine him doing that. Yeah, he, uh, especially his mother. Because you know what? He, uh, somehow, he knows that he can overpower her. She's little. But, I mean, it, 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 it kind of it sounds like you're blaming Gladys. I'm not blaming her. But when he gets mad, then, and you have to deal with him. I later replayed this conversation with Gladys. Too nice? Yeah. What means too nice? I, I did with Arnaldo like I did with Miriam. It's same. It's the same. I try to do the best for both. Sometimes I said, no, no, you can't do that. no. You can teach anybody with love. More love than bad words or, or, or punishment. Punishment don't help. Punishment don't help. Don't do that. I'm sorry, Daisy. I no agree. <laughs> no agree with that. Daisy doesn't just blame Gladys, though. She also blames APD. She does have a particular axe to grind here. APD revoked her license to operate as a services coordinator about a decade ago. 
But by her description, the agency has only made it more and more difficult for people and their families to get the services they need. APD is a mafia. APD, uh, uh, let me tell you, they're so corrupt. I'm wondering, is, um, is APD a mafia or are they just like starved for money? Yeah, they always they never have money. They're always on red and, and the budget and the budget is always short and there's a lot of people that need services and they can't provide services. This is definitely true. APD has seen its budget slashed year after year after year. Florida spends nearly the smallest fraction of resident income in the nation on developmental disability services. It's second worst only to Nevada. And here's the thing about operating disability services in a state that continually cuts funding. Staying in business can be hard. And this is a business where people are trying to make as much money as possible from the people they serve. How do they do that? Here's a hint. The worse a client's issues, the more you can charge the state to provide them services. APD handbooks are full of words like transition and improvement. But if you're a service provider, improvement in your clients actually means less money for you. Thomas Ware does what Daisy used to do, a middleman for families that depend on APD in Central Florida. He says, yeah, if you're a for-profit provider, there's a benefit to keeping your clients at a level that requires the most care. Say, for instance, a person is a moderate. If you're moderate, you're gonna. Get, it's a certain price that's gonna come with that area. So, what does that mean? What does moderate uh, moderate mean? Moderate is. I'm sorry, and I'm talking to you like like you don't know all of the verbiage for this. But um, so, moderate is more or less manageable. Maybe that's such a, a, that's such a to, funny word, like manageable to who? Yeah. So manageable as in a one to ten ratio of oversight. That means one staff member per ten clients. So that person would only bring in a certain amount of money. So if a person is is not moderate, if they move to more of a behavioral status where it's intensive, I need one person overseeing three people or one person to one person. So more quote-unquote bad behavior equals a bigger price tag on your head? Oh yeah, absolutely. Because it, it, caught, it, it entails more services. It's business. I mean, for a lot of people, it's business for people. And when you make care a business and subject it to the pressures any business faces, it can lead to some pretty disturbing outcomes, like withholding therapy that would help people need a lower level of care, like the use of physical restraints, like drugging people so it's easier to control them. That's next when After Effect continues. We've heard Gladys' memories, but I wanted to dig deeper into what happened to Arnaldo. So I got from her a list of names. Past teachers, doctors, group homes, got more names from records. And one of the most eager people to talk to me was an old teacher of Arnaldo's, Jeremiah Garza. I found him on Facebook. He jumped on the phone with me right away. Do you, do you remember Arnaldo? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, ma'am, I, I do. He's... Uh... He was he was something else when I when I first met him. 
This was after Quest, a period when Arnaldo, Gladys, and Miriam were moving a lot. Florida hadn't helped Arnaldo the way Gladys had hoped. She then tried moving back to Puerto Rico. Then, in 2007, Texas, which actually ranks up with Florida as one of the worst states in the nation for disability services. But a friend had a son with autism in San Antonio, said she'd help get them set up. He was a big kid. Now, I guess he's a man now, right? Yeah. And uh, when I saw him, he would do these voices. The first thing I noticed, he would do voices, and I couldn't understand what it was. Later on, we figured out what it was. It was he would watch, like, Disney shows, and he would replay their voices. Uh, like, one that he would always say is, all hell King Richard, but he would do them in a different voice. Arnoldo was 17 or 18 at the time. Jeremiah was just five years older. They had a good bond. Arnoldo called Jeremiah Papa. It's a name he'd give to a lot of guys he liked. So when I hung out with him, all I did was just hang out with him. It literally felt like my, like my big little brother. And Arnaldo, you would pay attention to your facial reactions. And if you were having a bad day or you had whatever, an issue that day, he would come up to you and he'd put his hand on your back or lean in front of your face and look up to you. And then he would repeat some female part of some Disney show, whatever it would be. That was his version of, hey, man, you okay? You know what I mean? You could tell that's what he was trying to get at. I recognize the Arnaldo Jeremiah described. The movie lines, the ever-present collection of toys Jeremiah said he'd carry, the desire to please. Jeremiah says one time the class had taken a field trip to a park. Arnaldo had been having a hard time. Jeremiah had to take him back to school, wait with him in a classroom. And I guess he thought I was mad or something. I have no idea. But the whole time he kept rubbing my shoulder, like my left shoulder. He was like, Papa, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He would put his hands up and he would just kept on doing that. Like he was so sorry that he had messed up. You could tell he was a good kid. You know what I mean? It's just when he would get mad, he would change voices and he would scream. He would yell. And when that guy went at you, man, he went at you. It was it, it was something. That's why I never ever took anything he did personal, because he was a good kid. It's just, there's something going on with him. I wanted to ask Jeremiah more about this, because from talking to Daisy, digging through Arnaldo's medical records, I'd seen this other side of Arnaldo. Infrequent, but pretty startling violence. Lashing out, even at the people he loved most. Uh, man, he, he was a handful. He was definitely a handful. When he would get upset, you could see in his eyes that he had no control, like, he would look at you and he would start tearing up and whenever he would attack, like he, he literally had no control. Like I, I knew it. That's why I never, and he hit me a couple of times, more than a couple of times. And then he did some, you know, some crazy things. And, and I just, you know, you look in his eyes and you knew it wasn't him. He would just like switch over and he would just, man, lack of a better term, man, he, he just lose it. Jeremiah says, yeah, sometimes when Arnaldo hit him, it was a real swing. But he learned to recognize Arnaldo's triggers and how to avoid them. How to sense when Arnaldo was about to have an episode and create a space for him to calm back down. In San Antonio, the family owned a three-bedroom house on the edge of a city park. Miriam worked at the Dairy Queen. She'd sneak home ice cream for Arnaldo. And then, as the sun went down, they'd go walking on the park trails. Arnaldo would point out deer. Miriam remembers it as the freest she ever saw him. When he left, I, I didn't know anything uh, at all. Like, I, I didn't, next thing I know, he was gone. I was like, oh, man. And it, it, I guess it's kind of hard. You know, you see him at school and you always expect, oh, you'll see him again, you'll see him again. And then I never saw him again. Do you know why they moved? Yeah, his mom, his mom got a way better paying job in Florida. 
Oh, really? That's good. That's really good. In another scene that floats through Gladys's mind when she thinks about what Arnaldo's been through, it's 2012. The family's back in Florida. Arnaldo's 22. Any services he could get through the school system go away. It's the cliff we talked about last episode. He's still having behavioral issues, and the only place Gladys has been able to get him services is in group homes. This part of Arnaldo's story was hard to find people to talk about. There were three different past doctors of Arnaldo's I called so often, I got on a first-name basis with their assistants. That doesn't mean I ever got the doctors on the line. Three past group homes where I did get the owners on the phone wouldn't go on record, just said Arnaldo was difficult. But in this scene, Gladys remembers clearly how she snuck into the yard of a comfort group home. She's peeking in the window. Arnaldo's been at the home a month. The owner has asked Gladys to stay away while he settles in. But she has reason to be nervous. She told me that a couple months earlier, Arnaldo had ended up in the emergency room after an employee at another group home bashed his head with a broom. So picture Gladys outside this group home. She cups her hands around her face to see through the glare of the window. And there he is. There's Arnaldo. Once again, tied to a chair, not moving. She runs in the door. He doesn't respond. His skin's discolored. Slow, shallow breaths. She calls 911, even though the one employee present tells her not to. When Arnaldo gets to the hospital, the doctor says if she'd waited any longer, Arnaldo would have died. Gladys says Arnaldo had been deprived of water while chemically restrained. Chemical restraint is when providers use medication like antipsychotics to stop someone's behavior, to effectively slow their central nervous system. It's against the law to use chemical restraints against someone for convenience, but it happens. Chemical restraints are a common cost-saving measure in group homes, and a national study on restraint-related deaths of developmentally disabled people found the majority also involved medication. Tamara Vequion, the owner of Comfort Group Home, refused to comment on Arnaldo's time there, repeatedly. Just hung up as soon as she heard Arnaldo's name. When I talk to disability advocates for this story, the thing they keep emphasizing is, the way things were with Arnaldo, that's not the way things have to be. It's cheap and easy to drug people up so they'll sleep their days away. Finding out how to reach them and help them live fulfilling lives is hard and expensive. But non-speaking people who lash out physically will use other tools to communicate, if they're given them. I had conversations with non-speaking folks who use tablets to talk, who have companions who help them type out their thoughts. Advocates told me intellectually disabled people can still have agency over their lives, should still get to decide what they want. Well, I think a lot of it comes down to having people in their life that can interpret their will and preference from the communication they make available. This is Ari Naaman again, autistic self-advocate, co-founder of the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. You know, I knew one man with a significant intellectual disability and very little functional speech whose support staff would take him to the community pool and help him bring his wheelchair to the entrance of the pool where there was the, the wheelchair door open button. 
And if he wanted to go swimming that day, he would press the button. And if he didn't want to go swimming, he wouldn't press the button and they would go somewhere else and, you know, do something else. Now, in order to do that, you've got to have support staff that can familiarize themselves with that person's unique means of communicating and find what works and so on and such forth. So it's it's difficult. These are hard problems, but it's, it's you know, very possible. Yeah, I'm, I'm, th- I'm even imagining that the support staff probably would have had to still pack up and get him ready for the pool no matter what. And I, I can see a person, you know, doubt, doubting like, oh, but we're already ready to go to the pool. We should just go. Right. And having to check that instinct. That's exactly right. You know, you basically you need support staff that are, um, you know, really understanding the nature of their mission, which is not custodial care, but it's really working to tease out the needs of um, someone who may struggle to communicate um, in the way that you and I do. What, what is a best-case scenario for, um, for someone like Arnaldo who does need assistance with kind of day-to-day self-care? Well, you want to bring services to where people choose to live, and it's important to work with them so that there's a meaningful choice. Some people are going to want to live in apartments. Some people are going to want to live in family homes. Some people are going to want to live in a house with roommates. But the idea is rather than saying, this is where we have services for you, this is where you get to live, services should instead follow the individual to whatever kind of housing environment they choose. And that's what Miriam and Gladys hope for Arnaldo, to have his own home where assistants come help him. And the crazy thing is, staffing someone with round-the-clock, one-on-one companions in their home is usually cheaper than supporting them in a group home. But time and time again, through the way money gets allocated by lawmakers and state agencies, we decide this is not the way we want things to happen. For the last part of Arnaldo's story before the North Miami shooting, there's a lot of documentation. Hundreds upon hundreds of pages of hospital records. It starts in 2014. Arnaldo is going in and out of the local hospital psych wards, bouncing between Gladys's home and the hospital. It's the same story over and over. He'll do something at the house that scares Miriam and Gladys, or be violent with them. They'll call the police for backup, and the police will commit him to a psych ward. Miriam described it to me on one of our drives to Carlton Palms. Arnaldo can get very aggressive. And it blacks out. Like, he blacks out. It's not him anymore. It's like another person. It's like another side of his brain takes over, and he's no longer him. He's not, he doesn't recognize you. He doesn't differentiate if you're the mother or the sister or anybody. He doesn't care. He will bite you. He will punch you in the face. He will tackle you and put you in the floor. That, that's how aggressive he can get. Yeah. He's very strong. At what point was that the worst? 2014? Each time Arnaldo's committed, hospital clinicians report Gladys begging them to let him come back home. She offers explanations for his behavior. He's upset because I wasn't allowed to visit, 
or he had a headache, or you're giving him too heavy antipsychotics. Chemical restraint is also part of the formal records. And soon, they stop sending him home and just keep sending him to different group homes. There's another change that happens about this time, too. When Arnaldo was committed a couple times in 2013, clinicians note his echolalia. It's a common trait of autism when a person repeats lines of dialogue, like Arnaldo does with movie quotes. In 2014, the framing changes. Doctors note Arnaldo talking to himself. And that's something they start describing as schizophrenia. Unlike autism, it's a mental health diagnosis, which helps justify his stay in the psych ward. Arnaldo carries that diagnosis to this day. He takes the heavy antipsychotic Thorazine for it. Hospital representatives would not provide a doctor to respond to our inquiries about this diagnosis, but it's something Gladys and Miriam strongly disagree with. It's not that people can't have autism and a mental health disability at the same time. In fact, that's pretty common. But there is a long history of autism being confused to schizophrenia. Remember how it's illegal to chemically restrain someone just for convenience? Totally okay to give heavy psychiatric drugs for schizophrenia. Uh, excuse, excuse me, do you know if it's still a group home here? Yes, it is. It still is? There was one more stop I wanted to make. In 2016, Arnaldo went through five different group homes in just a few months. He'd last a few weeks, sometimes a few hours, before getting kicked out of each one. So for one of his last group homes, I decided to just show up. Precious Dreams Group Home is a pale yellow house in South Miami, bordered by an evergreen shrub and two palm trees. There's a van that just pulled up. A middle-aged man gets out of the driver's seat. Hey, how's it going? Are you the owner? Yeah. I reached out to you, Audrey Quinn. I'm a reporter with WNYC. He's happy to talk, but doesn't want to be recorded. Two young men who appear to be developmentally disabled also get out of the van. One walks up real close to me. How are you? He gets even closer. Nice to meet you. Oh, we're going to get a hug. The owner explains he's affectionate. Suddenly, we're doing a slow motion version of that kiss on both sides thing. Oh, this is the European way. Only better because unlike usual, I have time to catch on to what's happening. That's nice. The owner looks proud. Yeah, do you, do you remember Arnaldo? He was here like April 2016. He says yes, he does. Arnaldo almost killed him. Came up from behind, tried to bite him on the neck. His wife intervened. Arnaldo spent only 16 days at the home. Racked up a string of attacks while he was there. They called him the cannibal? The owner confirms the nickname. Yes, the cannibal. There's this really indelicate question I caught myself asking this group homeowner, one I'm not proud of. It was a moment of just how confused I was by everything being said about Arnaldo when the owner started listing off what he saw as Arnaldo's crimes. Wow. Do you think... This is hard because do you think he's disabled or do you think he's bad? I know this is a ridiculous question, but some version of it kept coming up for me. And I think there's a lot of preconceptions about disability packed into it. This paradigm that intellectually disabled people are either monsters or infantile and blameless. I'm catching myself tied up on that dichotomy. I think a lot of people are.
Arnaldo is a person. And frankly, based on what I know of what has happened to Arnaldo, I'm not surprised that Arnaldo has lashed out aggressively in the past. I have done so. Many people I know have done so. Lydia Brown is a law student, disability justice advocate, autistic. Some autistic people are violent and abusive and terrible human beings. It's not because they're autistic. It's because they're violent, abusive, and terrible human beings. But that's true of any category. Like, like autistic people can be assholes too. Right. What Lydia's saying here might seem obvious, but autistic people can be nice people. Autistic people can be not so nice people, just like anyone else. But unlike everyone else, they're a lot more likely to get abused. And odds are, the more severe their disability, the more severe the abuse. So when an abused autistic person gets violent, what do we make of that? It's not a matter of necessarily good or evil. And that especially if someone's responding to trauma, it doesn't mean they're being a bad person, even if they're being physically aggressive. For one thing, there's often a power differential and that the people who have power over your life um, can shut you in an institution forever, whereas you may be able to hit them a few times. And that's not to say that Everyone should just go hit people because it's not as bad as being put into an institution. But there is a power differential there. Lydia has what some people might see as some pretty radical beliefs around personal freedom. We talked about stimming before, repetitive, calming movements that a lot of autistic people like to do. Lydia says if an autistic person's go-to stim is to stab their hand with scissors, that's their right to do that. Well, it's not an emergency because they're not stabbing themselves in the neck and they're not stabbing another person with the scissors. So, yes, that's... Wait, but like stabbing, like, it'd be... I, I can't done. imagine... Okay, okay. I'm not but done I can't imagine this. seeing that scene and not feeling like I needed to act. Well, th- frankly, that's ableist and paternalistic. But secondly, going back to, okay, so if someone is doing that, like, say they've done this five times, so you know that each time they've done it, they'll do it for about two minutes and then stop, and then you get them a lot of Band-Aids, and um, the person cries for a while and eventually goes back to minimally existing in the space that you're in. I, w- I want to know what that looks like, though. Like, like say, um, say Arnaldo is living with his family. He's having a, beh- a behavioral crisis. He's having a meltdown. His mother is, is f- physically scared. What, like, what happens next? Well, it really does depend on the individual circumstances. I don't know Arnaldo personally, And I think it's inappropriate to be talking about Arnaldo specifically at his worst moments in such a public forum because I wouldn't want someone doing that to me. Don't be a predatory reporter. It matters to me so much to like to do this as well as I can. But I also feel like I, like as a journalist, as journalists, we try to tell like the fullest picture of the story as we can, and I'm not gonna like not share that there are parts of Arnaldo's life that are not beautiful. To me, that feels like I need to go there because that is- Is that something that Arnaldo has given you permission to talk about publicly? Because that's the really important question. That is a really important question, and I hadn't gotten a satisfying answer yet. After all I learned about Arnaldo, seeing how he's been sent here, there, to this group home, to that psych ward, drugged, restrained, 
all by people with the legal consent to do so, all by people acting in his interest. How can I be sure I'm not taking advantage of Arnaldo? But how do you get permission from someone when you don't know how to ask what they're thinking? Don't even know if they understand your questions. Miriam! Audrey's here! <laughs> I started this episode in Gladys's kitchen, looking at her paper calendar. In spring 2016, that period when Arnaldo was going from group home to group home, her entries change. They stop being strictly facts. She starts writing more about her feelings. On the box for April 9th, 2016. I saw my dear son. I'm dying of shame to see him in such bad shape. In the margins of that month's page, my heart sinks in the most terrible desolation. I am a coward and can't take any more. July 16th, 2016. This is really hard. I leave that. I leave that. Arnaldo, they change, change, and change for group home to another group home to another group home. And he, he lost the stability. He lost the good manner. He lost everything. Only he tried to survive. Inside Arnaldo is a good person. He's a very good person. I don't know if the things that we have said have made sense. Yeah. Because we are, our emotions are still all messed up and, and, and we are, we haven't been able to piece together our emotions. Yeah. Because it's a mix of frustration, anger, uh, a sense of impotence that mm -hmm. we don't want to make anybody angry and then no. take it out on Arnaldo. Yeah. Because that is our weakness. After all this, I had Arnaldo's history. But after fleshing it all out, filling in the gaps, what I've started to see is less a series of incidents, more a pattern asserting itself over and over again. Underserved, abused, moved, committed, underserved and abused again. You see Arnaldo's mom, his sister, trying to help, but not having the means or power. And what you don't see, really, at any point, is Arnaldo having any say in any of this. I don't think Arnaldo would choose this, whether it's being taken from his family or having his caregiver shot. But he didn't get to, because having choice is the opposite of being controlled. And the people often ultimately responsible for enforcing that control are the police. They took the handcuff, and then when they turned him around, I almost fainted. His shirt was full of blood. He was full of blood. I'll head back to North Miami to uncover what the cops there really were up to, with Arnaldo, with disabled people in general. That's next on After Effect. After Effect by Only Human is a podcast from WNYC Studios. It's produced and reported by me, Audrey Quinn, and edited by Ben Adair. Additional reporting from Aneri Patani. 
Production help from Phoebe Wang. Casey Means is our technical director with engineering help from Matt Boynton and Jared Paul. Hannes Brown is our composer. Our team of talented reporter-producers includes Christopher Johnson, Mary Harris, Amanda Aronchik, and Christopher Wirth, with help from Margot Slade. Michelle Harris is our fact-checker. Our intern is Caitlin Sullivan. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. WNYC's health coverage and After Effect are supported in part by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Jane and Gerald Catcher and the Catcher Family Foundation, Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation, and the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Thanks also to the Rosalind Carter Fellowship for Mental Health Journalism.